Cracks and Pomo will be releasing a zine featuring a variety of writers, some of whom have been featured on this podcast. To order a copy or to make a contribution to our funds, please DM at Cracks and Pomo. Okay, so we're back at Cracks in Postmodernity with Matthew Donovan, who's a student at Columbia and also host of co-host of Neoliberal Health Podcasts. Matthew, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So we're currently at the Hungarian Pastry Shop, very famous place. Um, if you haven't been here, you definitely should come here at some point. And we're going to discuss this essay you wrote, The Ambient Polity, which is to be published soon. But for people who are unfamiliar, just give a little bit of background. Like, what are you trying to address in this essay? What are you trying to say? Give us a brief idea. So I can give you kind of the genealogy of the article maybe later, but as a summation, it's just basically about how politics itself has um, basically been something that is no longer accessible, just like the idea of uh, us uh, accessing who we are and a society that is increasingly run by automation, um, art artificial intelligence. And basically, as uh, this technology speeds up, it, human uh, creativity and, and selfhood is replaced by uh, autopilot culture that runs without any intervention from humans. Yeah, so I think what's interesting here in the beginning, you're talking about this concept of the hyper-political, which is brought on by, you know, the pervasiveness of virtual reality. So, like, I would say, you know, as Weber would say, the disenchantment or, you know, the uprooting from the real, from the material or the concrete, and how it kind of disperses, like, the political, the, yeah, like, the options for political engagement, political discourse that we have. So, like, give us more of a sense of the dawn of this disenchantment, this uh, this fracturing, as you say, and how it turns us into this this hyper political position. Yeah, I think this is this foundation is really important. So I'm glad we're starting there. So, basically, at the turn of the century, uh, humans are moving to urban cities, and the disenchantment comes from the ever awareness of. Uh, how industrialization and urbanity has led to people being more and more uh, separated. Um, when we move to cities, we all of a sudden are in this competition of individualism and intellectualism. And uh, this pervasiveness of, of division leads to um, a, a sense of alienation as well. And so the internet era is, a, is, is actually a concentrated version of this where... Um, schismogenesis, the, the process that socio sociologists talk about where we have to kind of divide ourselves from everyone around us, speeds up. So individuals cont continue to be hyper-fractured in ways that they've never been before as basically information processes and concentration of people um, speeds up. And, uh, and my summary of this is basically that it actually leads to uh, the loss of any connection to who we are because we're always being divided, ratioed, and in a political system that's vetocratic. So. 
Yeah, and I think the other piece of this is that the traditional kind of political categories we have, like left, right, traditional, progressive, etc., like it kind of you know like there's no basis for this anymore like everything is kind of again it's uprooted and now like you say something interesting about the relationship between like perhaps manual laborers working class and the professional managerial class knowledge workers so like how have we shifted from the the old kind of political spectrum to this new one where it's really based on the kind of like the nature of work that you're doing right so uh, the factory floor where labor held out on uh, human um, creativity and had some sense of collectiveness through, uh, you know, labor unions um, was slowly supplanted as basically uh, unions were systematically weakened over the last couple of decades. Labor now has become increasingly precarious. And not only that, um, labor has shifted to the realm of the cognitive, mostly. And, uh, and so now uh, what were once the precariat are now the cognitariat, the cognitive precariat people. And uh, now we live basically uh, isolated from labor itself. And not only that, we're now uh, increasingly uh, seeing less and less uh, ability to create work in the future as artificial intelligence is taking over uh, the, the cognitive realm. Yeah, and like that leads to this point you make about like this meta hyper aware kind of individual who, uh, I don't know, like you talk about the culture of like post, post, post or like... Um, x y and z core you know how it's like it's um i guess what you're saying like it's a means of coping with the fact that like we don't have any substantial avenues of political engagement to make real changes so like i don't know what do you see here in these the manifestations of these niche internet communities these these identities these uh i don't know like how is this a reaction to the lack of substantial ways to be involved in social realities. Yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, when, for instance, Joshua Cedarella talks about e-ideologies or e-dologies, e-dologies is how it's spelled online. Um, in some sense, it seems as if these things are new, these kind of prefixes of, um, you know, uh, sou southern, uh, you know, South globalism, uh, monarchos, socialism, you know, these kind of like long abbreviated types of political uh, stances are like new. I think maybe like the giving it the specific language is new, but the, uh, you know, the, the hyper division of political categories has long existed. Um, and it was likely less of a, a performative identity that was, you know, used online. And I, I do agree with what Stephen's saying. I do think that in some ways um, that performance has become how we live through, um, like, this idea of being political without actually engaging with politics outside when everything is isolated basically to the online and, and cognitive realm, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I mean, that's the thing I was saying to you before, that, like, Looking at these these new niche political communities, whether it's, you know, dirtbag left or, like, far-right populists um, or the, even, like, the Catholic integralists, 
I don't think they have that much substance, honestly. Like they're, you know, these meta ironic reactions to the the emptiness of the mainstream discourse. Like also what I was saying about, I don't know, when I was younger, I didn't really trust legacy media. Like I didn't trust the establishment like most young people. What's different now though is that like there are these actual communities that have platforms um, that I, I mean, I wouldn't say they're competing with legacy media, like Red Scare is not competing with Fox News per se, but, but there's like a viable like place for people who have these ideas to actually say what they're thinking. Um, and as much as, again, like I said, they, I think they do lack some substance, they're immature in a way. I do think this is a necessary intermediary step that we need to take because, like, I don't know, if we look at the vast majority of people who are not spending their whole days online, like the quote-unquote normies, the, like, to take one of the establishment positions, whether left or right-leaning, I think, like, it's over. Like, it's, you know, as Patrick Deneen said, liberalism has failed in all of its manifestations. So to say that, you know... I don't know, to criticize these niche political communities as being, like, immature or childish, it's like, okay, but what's the alternative? I think in order to actually start making real headway, we do need to take on this ironic position, this performative position. And this is, yeah, like, this was wild. Like, wild was insane. Like, wild was not a coherent person, but it was through his, his insanity, through his decadence that he was actually able to say something very substantial, very truthful about society. So like, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah just to kind of round out that point, uh, Zizek talks about how people on the left often, um, you know, watch revolutionary films to vicariously live through the people they're watching. And I think um, our kind of experiences we have online are uh, a lot of times it's like we live vicariously through either the ideologies or the the types of uh, posting that others do. And that proximity gives us a feeling of uh, aliveness and, you know, <laughs> integration within the greater whole and uh, of society. And uh, it, I mean, if we accept that it's all in the cognitive realm, then we can kind of qualify how political it truly is, you know? Yeah. No, and I can you, I want you to say a little bit more about, like, you mentioned Zizek and this concept of the big other and how. You know, like this extremely hyper-bureaucratic system that we're in that's brought on by this Weberian disenchantment, um, you know, the Protestant work ethic, whatever you want to call it. Um, Like, we're always griping about something. There's always some... We want to point the finger at someone to, like, pin all of our, our hardships on. But, again, it's like, who really is to blame? Like, because things are so virtual, so uprooted it's nearly impossible to actually pinpoint what is the source of the issue and what concretely can I do about it? So, like, well, I don't know, like, what do, what do you see happening in this, like, searching for the big other to blame our issues on? I mean, so I, I guess if you, if you read the essay, a lot of what I'm doing here is just pointing out and all the ways in which we are dislocated, disempowered, um, you know, buried under, uh, you know, a thousand layers of meaning that we can't reach. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of the Weberian reference, the, the hundreds of layers of bureaucracy that we're all buried under and the types of change that we want to affect is quite limited by um, the fact that, as Weber says, we're hard boring uh, into uh, a type of 
material that takes, in some cases, decades, you know, to affect that change. And so, I mean, uh, the kind of gotcha that a lot of people that are in the uh, kind of uh, dirtbag left or the um, tradcraft horseshoe uh, kind of say, like, well, good for you for, uh, you know, doing activism. It doesn't do anything. But, you know, as somebody that has been part of activism uh, projects, uh, it just takes a long time. And the kind of history and result of this, of progressivism or any of these things, um, will take several decades. Uh, If you think that history moves at a pace of your cognitive uh, desire, it doesn't. History has its own, uh, you know... (laughs) moving and uh the speed in which it's moving is not likely at the speed of twitter or the speed of the the kind of ways that we move nowadays um so accepting that you know that history moves slowly is another way of just bringing realism to the you know the kind of reality that we're engaging with um and so even though i'm saying we're disempowered in some ways by this bureaucracy we're disenchanted um if we accept it we can have some qualified hope within there, you know, like saying like, okay, so like, look, AOC is now like pro-Ukraine and, you know, AOC is like this and that. And like, yeah, I never thought, I was never an AOC fan, so I was never disappointed um, because I knew that she would be controlled by the vectors of power in history in the same way that Bernie Sanders was and that she couldn't have even existed without Bernie Sanders and that all of these projects happening locally across the nation doing little really small things you know um they're not as much as i like but i i am happy with the you know the little bits of change that we get because i'm a realist um yeah Yeah. no and i this brings me to this whole issue of ironic like being ironic versus being sincere cringe versus based however you want to however you want to phrase it because so like and we can go a little bit into Maddie Healy here and the the Gia Tolentino piece so like um so I'm I share with you like this piece that I wrote that's going to be published probably tomorrow for Unheard um but basically what I saw in Gia Tolentino's take on Maddie Healy is like there's this tension between being ironic being sincere that he's able to maintain in a very, um, I don't know, in a way that's really distinct because, and this goes back to Wild. Like, Wild is extremely decadent. Wild is super artificial, like in the campy sense. And it's through that exaltation of artifice that he's able to point to something that's true, able to point to, like, nature. Um, It's this capacity for paradox and nuance that I think our like super disenchanted super enlightenment style culture has no concept of so what healy is doing by like making these super ironic super outlandish statements is pointing to something that's actually sincere um and i think this this is what the whole like dirtbag left whatever kind of culture is trying to do in a way like you're becoming so apathetic, you're becoming so uh, detached, you open a space to discover, like, okay, but then what is real? What actually does matter? Um, And I don't know, like, there's... um, 
again, it's this, it's this paradoxical logic that we struggle very much to understand. So I don't know, like I'm interested in some of your thoughts on this tension between being ironic, being sincere, um, and how it can like, again, like by being super fake, you can point to something very real and ever in you know? Yeah, I mean, if we can connect this to the previous thing about like how history and culture move very slowly, um, first of all, I think that Maddie Healy is downstream from, like, podcasters, basically. And um, I've joked a lot about how um, how podcasters are the new rock stars. And that kind of proves... Sorry about that. Um, that kind of proves this in a way because he's downstream from, um, for instance, I Am Pac, who's a New York podcast and who's downstream from Red Scare and... Um, like the film industry and the music industry um, themselves. But um, I think more or less he's downstream from what what is perceived to be kind of the aesthetics and dispositions of, quote, Dime Square or Redacted Square. Um, and so um, in that way, you know, it's less interesting, you know, to say like, okay, like, well, he, you know, he's getting all this, uh, you know, pop media attention because of this. And because um, he's downstream from these other people, people within the scene are less interested in him. They're more critical of him. But to the wider culture, I think that's really important to pay attention to. Um, you know, like how this is actually being transmitted to a culture that is outside of this niche scene here in New York. Um, and that's where his relevance comes in, in my perspective. So slowly, people like him are going to be more common. He's going to be kind of like the, you know, he's, he's putting out the red carpet for all of these other celebrities who might jump on this bandwagon. And then, you know, a lot of the people um, like w that are on his side were pointing out uh, Taylor Swift being in a photo with the person that had a Nazi shirt on. Um, this person named AJ, who uh, plays in the band Patriarchy in LA, if you know them. And uh, how that was, how even though people are pointing out that that is supposedly making her Nazi, uh, I, for those that aren't aware, that, that shirt in itself was supposed to be satirical. Um, and uh, so instead of uh, it being a gotcha from the perspective of uh, the downtown ironic scene, I'm going to say that one more time because it was honking. Instead of it being a gotcha from the downtown scene to show that, oh, look, Taylor Swift is actually the racist here. It actually just reinforces that irony has, uh, you know, the, that mode of irony and trolling has long been a part of this culture, um, even in 2012 when that photo was taken. So, Yeah. Side note, have you ever read the, I think it was like an article or a soundbite where Camille Paglia called Taylor Swift a Nazi Barbie? A not Nazi Barbie? Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Uh, like six years ago or something. I don't know. It's, it reminds me. It reminds me of like the move that like that guy that wrote the book Liberal Fascism kind of made, though, right? Isn't that kind of the same move? I mean, she was saying how she was compared. She was making a statement about like wasp middle class white girls and how like they have these followings of fellow girl bosses and it's like fascistic in a way i don't know it was just camille Paglia being camille Paglia. it was funny but yeah i mean it's yeah it's a it just reminds me of what jonah goldberg said when he was talking about liberal fascism it's like uh camille Paglia doing hot takes for hot takes sake which is uh great i mean uh I'm here that, for it. yeah yeah i mean in, in itself it's like i don't mind people taking down taylor swift personally 
Um, I don't Do care. You like her, like as a musician. I don't think there's any redeemable qualities of Taylor Swift I mean, as a person or a cultural figure. Yeah. Um, but I also I I find uh, it difficult to find. Uh, well, here we go again. It's New York. What can you expect? But I also find it difficult to find a lot of redeemable qualities in Camille Paglia, personally, too. Yeah, I mean, outside of that... I mean, outside of the hot take industrial complex that she's, like, a part of, like, it's kind of... You kind of said it yourself. Like, anti-wokeness is in itself just a pop sensibility um, to reduce the, you know, the culture war to something that is much simpler than it actually is. But she's a real scholar, though. Can we... I don't think we can deny that. Like, Catherine Stockton's a real scholar. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole, but, <laughs> but we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I mean, she's old, though. Like, what is she, like, 70, 80? I, yeah, I mean, I, I just like that, like, she claimed that she was trans at one point, and then that article was, like, scrubbed offline. <laughs> trans in, like, a cosmic sense? That's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, no, I, I don't know, but either way... Uh, I think whatever hot take that was uh, would have played really well in today's... I, I think it actually would have added complexity to the argument, um, you know, if she was, like, one of these, like, right-wing trans people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll leave Pallia for another day. Um, no, but back to Maddie. So, like, what I really loved... First of all, I have to say, Gio Tolentino really did a great job here. Really captured, like, the many facets of his, his history, his his spiel but there's the point where she asks him about that i'm freelance show appearance and he's like none of this matters like why like there's no no one should care the fact that you know if you're staying up late at night worrying about what maddie healy said either you're mentally ill or your priorities are extremely out of order so it's like when and of course like this soundbite everyone's freaking out over this like i'm seeing this all over twitter and instagram but if you stop and think it's like okay this is this form of meta ironic decadent performance art which is trying to say like sure what he said was ridiculous it was immoral but by doing that he's highlighting wait aren't we all kind of immoral aren't we all kind of messed up and need to reevaluate like what am i living for what are my priorities and then he's supposed to say like what really matters to me is not how politically correct I am or whatever, but, like, how is my mother doing? Do I need to take better care of her? Like, who are the people I need to be spending my time with? So it's like by going to this one decadent extreme, you're shedding light on what actually does matter in the end, which our, you know, our hyper-political correct culture tends to downplay the importance of, you know. Yeah, I mean... I think he kind of, uh, I think he lost a great uh, kind of opportunity there to educate people about the problems of PC culture in a way that's more meaningful. Like, because if we are to take what he said at face value, um, we shouldn't care what Maddie Healy says. Um, would that mean that he's not going to sell out Madison Square Garden because we don't care about Maddie Healy at all? Are, is he no longer going to be a celebrity? I, I think that he does care, actually, about what people think um, deeply. And uh, it's usually people that are deeply obsessed with how people perceive them that 
a lot of times continue to stay uh, in the limelight because they basically monitor their uh, their projection into the world more than others and have a team of people like Lee that coached him on what to say and all of this and so they're pivoting to the personal he's saying like well I'm just a regular guy I care about my mom and you shouldn't think too much about what I have to say ignore that I'm a celebrity but I think what he should have said is that well the kind of culture that has given rise to all of these people critiquing me is really toxic and as much as you think that like you're you're creating progress in culture by like monitoring what I'm saying actually uh, you're you're not helping anyone. You're just really playing into this liberal middle class aesthetic of this is acceptable to say and this isn't acceptable. But it, it affects no real material change whatsoever. Um, he should have said that, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like again, back to Wild, his like extreme forms of decadent immorality was and you see this like in importance of being earnest or lady windermere's fan like by going in this like he's in this paradoxical way trying to shed light on what true morality is so by being extremely immoral and decadent he's trying to hold a mirror up to the culture and say look like you victorian people are so caught up with your morality and you're extremely immoral people um but then this is so like when i was reading the article though it also made me think of something that Anna from Red Scare says a lot. She's like, she was saying the thing that most like people who are obsessed with political correctness don't realize because they're mostly people in the professional managerial class, unlike working class people who actually have skin in the game. Like, what matters is not performing like you being on the correct side or you being an ally to a certain group of people but like being a loyal friend like being i don't know having kids and being a parent like having community having a faith whatever it may be um and it like it's funny because again people present red scares like oh these like decadent nihilistic uh you know dime square girls and again, like, there definitely is something nihilistic about it in a way. And yet, look at Anna. Like, she's a mother. She's, like, no, not a perfect person. But there's something much more, like, real about her than these people who are virtue signaling on Twitter all day. And I do think there's an interesting, like, both a, a commentary on class difference, but also, like, there's a cultural ethnic difference because the fact that she wasn't born in America, the way she was raised was not according to this wasp kind of puritanical American mentality. Um, so I don't know, like there's definitely there's that like working class ethnic sensibility that isn't as puritanical. Like, I don't know, like it's, at least growing up around Italian Americans, I see that it's normal to make politically incorrect jokes about people well, deep down, really loving them. You know, like, we're not obsessed about you can't say X, Y, and Z. And it ends up becoming a cover for, like, the fact that maybe you don't really love your friends that much. Maybe you're not as committed as you present yourself on the internet, you know. Um, but that brings me to this other point. So you include this Dean Kissick tweet about um, this, like, this headless position, as he says. And I think, in a way, this taps into, like, the dichotomy between the extreme relativism of the moment that like we can define ourselves however we want like there's no objective truth 
But also, again, we're stuck on this puritanical morality that, like, we have to cancel people if they say one thing that's, you know, slightly immoral. So, I don't know, I'm curious, like, what do you see here in this back and forth between, like, you know, anything goes versus, like, you know, again, wanting to eliminate someone because they break this speech code or whatever moral uh, standards? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think we should also kind of, as people who are thinking about this create like a new positioning for the cancel culture around PC politics. Um, I think two or three years ago that when people were canceled, it really had some kind of emotional uh, hold to it, but I don't think it really holds as much now um, since people like uh, Louis C.K. can sell out Madison Square Garden. It kind of proves that the cancel culture that we imagine um, and fear in our in our heads isn't really it's not playing out in a in a culturally meaningful way to really stick um and i think if somebody like him who's you know in some ways he didn't just break speech codes you know or speech acts he he actually did something like a lot what somebody like anna kachian would probably think is perverted even though i think they support him still you know um (coughs) and um so i mean like there's a little bit of a drift, I think, away from the speech acts thing to like a, a general culture of just acceptance of people doing things wrong. Um, and I think that's something maybe like where the the moral relativism on the anti-woke side has kind of come in as well, you know, where there's like Louis C.K. is associated with Dave Chappelle, even though Louis C.K. was like doing something perverted on the phone or like in front of, you know, somebody in front of him. Dave Chappelle's saying something that is not acceptable and they're canceled in the same way, right? But as I said, uh, you know, three years ago, he would have been canceled. Now we see that basically we live in the era where that cancellation is not sticking. Um, so, I mean, I don't think necessarily that that is something to worry about. I think what we're, what we should worry about is like how, um, basically the kids that go to the Maddie Healy concert now um, might not go there because they think that he's a bad person. And I think that that's that's not the correct position. I don't think that uh, anybody would think that that kind of dogma is productive. Yeah, and that was... Sorry, back to Palio. That was her whole thing with um, whatever Rolling Stones song where they said something like rapey, I guess. But she was saying, you know... Art, we can hold art to the same moral standard that we would politics or, like, religion or whatever. Like, art is supposed to be iconoclastic. It's supposed to question the, the moral norm. And, and it goes back to what I was saying to you before, like, with at least with Chappelle. If we can't laugh as a culture, like, if we don't have a sense of humor, we're screwed. Because then... It's not only that, like, first, our culture will be boring if we're not laughing, but also it's this false sense of, like, like, it's this idolatry of the self, like, and this is wild again with his, like, decadent, trad-cath kind of uh, horseshoe thing that part of his very Catholic worldview is that he understood that he was a sinner. He understood he was not God, and that means we should laugh at ourselves because we're like there's nothing about us hu- humans that we can take that seriously. You can't take a joke. That you can't laugh. You know. Well, I think, I think for uh, I think for Wild, it's interesting because 
he was uh, arrested for basically having sex with somebody's son that was wealthy and powerful. And he wasn't arrested for his art. You know, he was arrested for being somebody that lived openly as, you know, basically, uh, you know, a, a professional managerial class worker. Um, and, uh, you know, he was canceled for being openly gay in relation to somebody that had more power than him. So the cancellation thing kind of is the same thing. It hasn't changed. It's often people who, um, you know, who are likely they have some type of power and they can cancel people. And that's the history of cancellation in general. It's mostly been, you know, aimed at oppressed people for most of history. And now that kind of relationship has flipped a little bit. Um, so, like, if you were an immigrant, like, you know, like Anna and Anna Kachian, and you were saying something wrong, you're more likely to be canceled as a um, Eastern European um, than as a, a wasp. And so... That's kind of a context that we kind of miss because, um, because nowadays, you know, somebody from Eastern Europe might not be even considered uh, to be somebody that has uh, some kind of oppression. So, do you have any thoughts on Juno Diaz, the novelist? Do you know who he is? Uh, I'm aware of his. I'm aware of who he is, but I'm not aware of his work. Yeah. Because what you're saying makes me think of him because it's like it's this. Dominican-American guy, needless to say, Dominican men have a very distinct way of conceiving sexuality, mixed gender communication than wasps do. Um, Take it for what you will, but it's clearly different. And the fact that this guy is canceled for being, you know, a little bit inappropriate, I mean, yeah, there's clearly something problematic, but it's like we're, you know harping about diversity and like you know uh like dismantling the normativity of white kind of uh, modes of communication and cultural expression and you have this dominican guy who's acting the way that he was taught growing up and you try to destroy his career it's like sure if you're being inappropriate with your students you should be reprimanded but like where is this sense that the standard we're holding him to is extremely Anglo-Saxon Protestant, ex- extremely puritanical, you know? Yeah. yeah, I'm not aware of the situation, but yeah, I mean, what cancellation may- often means is just that you don't have access to certain institutions anymore. Um, so when that's aimed at people that don't have as much privilege, it's not really progressive. It's like more likely to be just reiterating the kind of like past struggles. Yeah. So, okay. So I want to move on to getting some of your hot takes. Uh, Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, But sorry, I never answered your question about the headless positions. My apologies. But yeah, I mean, basically, um, when we basically are, you know, endlessly in this game of creating opinion difference, like we have the most unique perspective or a game of contrarianism, basically, um, as uh, you know, Nimbus's Global's report, Max Payne says it becomes a, a player versus payer environment where each player is um, basically now uh, becoming so predictably contrarian, so pre- predictably different that reality no longer has um, you know a position within these and within this uh, matrix. And so um, nobody's reliable anymore, you know. Um, nobody online's reliable. It's, it's, it's incredible new level of meaninglessness. So. 
Yeah, no, and it's this question of what reality are we referring to? Like, when you mentioned Baudrillard and, like, virtual versus material, is it this dichotomy or have there always been multiple planes, multiple facets of reality, you know? So, like, that's, I don't know, this is definitely something we have to like ask seriously you know we can't take it for granted we know which reality we're talking about Um, yeah i mean sir like there's always been kind of like really alienated individualized realities uh a surf living in a a rural village that has a, a population in the double digits um is likely to have uh you know multiple layers of reality that they're existing within and perceiving but they can't communicate and the difference is that now we have just found so many new novel ways to communicate things that had always long existed but then that that form that communicative act now in itself has been a source of new alienation for everyone else around us because it's it's just embroiled with so many levels of performance and fakeness Um, And so it's like the same thing that happens in academia. People become so specialized that they no longer can communicate with people around them, even though they think they're being hyper-specific. And basically now everyone is enmeshed um, to the point of uh, just, you know, constant confusion and alienation and disenchantment. And that links to what you're saying about, like, the loss of common sense, like... There's no common point of reference anymore in reality. So, like, this is why people are acting, I don't know, crazy, for lack of a better term. But, yeah. All right. So, okay. So, some hot takes. Let's start with today, the 1st of June, beginning of Pride Month. Have any hot takes on Pride 2023? Oh, I mean, again... um, when you know when when gay and lesbian and queer people become recognized in the same way that uh you know we talked about how being canceled just means you're canceled in certain institutions being recognized just means that you are now accepted by certain institutions and so the same you know institutions that may historically oppress gay queer people are now basically the institutions that Um, you know, give a veneer of interest in these uh, people. Um, And so, I mean, even if that history doesn't speak to the meaninglessness of that, uh, maybe the, you know, the policies that have brought a recognition like gay marriage should, because basically marriage itself is largely a middle-class institution. Marriage does not necessarily mean that everyone can get married. There's still people that are not, uh, you know, that don't have access to that. Um, And, you know, if people should, if people are getting married, I think they should get married to like basically uh, just marry people so they can live in the United States. I think that's the best reason to get married. I have a prediction. I think so. Like up until now, you see on like let's say on the left, you see this anti-rainbow capitalism kind of performance on the internet. We also see on the right, like, just anti-pride in general. I think we're at the verge of, like, meta-pride now. Like, ironic celebration of pride. Because, I don't know, it's like, at this point, it's... I just think it's overplayed to be against, like, oh, rainbow capitalism. Like, you're not going to fire rainbow flags on July 1st. And also, like, the neocon reactionaries. I feel like it's almost... it's 
maybe this year it's going to start to end and then it's going to be like let's celebrate pride but like in an ironic way that makes fun of pride i don't know i just i don't think anyone it's just cringe it's i think it's cringe now to like yeah. be against it yeah i mean obviously there's going to be different ways to celebrate pride um but yeah the institution itself is obviously just like for people uh like children and people that are getting fully kind of integrated into like being accepted so like since we live in cities we think about things in like this hypercritical way like we think like oh like uh the the gay pride uh bank of america uh banner saying like we're opening you know i mentioned this in the article you know we have new interest rates for people who are gay just proved to us um by having gay sex in the lobby or something like that you know like that's really liber- liberatory, I'm sure. Um, and so, uh, but the other side of this is that, you know, we exist between multiple temporalities. So like people in rural Mississippi going to Pride would actually have, I, I still think that that would actually be meaningful if they're in certain places where uh, history breaks, you know, like where Pride hasn't existed and it goes there and it actually has some meaningful break with reality. Um, and that, that kind of break with reality is going to be different for each geolocation. Um, you know, if uh, the next Saudi, uh, you know, Saudi king started having, um, you know, had a OnlyFans with all of his gay lovers, like, I think a lot of people would think like, oh, that's, that's very different, you know, than the previous, um, you know, uh, power relations that existed before. And so, like, we have to if we are hyper aware we always have to qualify things within like this uh i mean we have to be detached from like whatever political priorities we have and um criticizing these narratives you know so all right so next hot take um chat gpt which you do mention in this essay um hot takes on it yeah oh i mean where's this going yeah, I mean, ChatGPT, uh, I recently was uh, responding to a, a Nick Cave article about how um, he was complaining, or he was criticizing ChatGPT or just artificial intelligence for not being able to uh, write a beautiful and creative song. And my response to that was basically that I think ChatGPT, if he used ChatGPT, like worked alongside of it, he could have wrote a better letter. Um, and um, I think that, like, the kind of, uh, you know, ignorance of uh, these boomers uh, who are obviously very influential on cultural history, um, they don't really have a place in history anymore, in my opinion. Um, I think this romanticism for humans and human intelligence and creativity um, and subjectivity is something we will laugh at in the future. Um, I, I think it's incredibly naive, and um, I, I don't actually think he knows how to use ChatGPT. Um, Nick Cave, if you're listening, I have access to ChatGPT4. Um, I've already wrote several better versions of your letter, um, and I'm going to be submitting it to Spike Magazine. So, Excellent. We'll be looking forward to reading it. Um, um, continuing on the tech note, TikTok? Just TikTok in general? Um, well, I mean, I, I just like some kind of logistical things. I, a lot of people have said that like TikTok is going to be made illegal, but um, my friends at TikTok are telling me actually that it would only be made illegal on like government computers and phones and that kind of thing. Um, it's not a real ban, um, if, if I understand correctly. Um, 
And yeah, we recently did a show in um, in LA where we we combined TikTok and Vines, and uh, you know, combining these two different eras together and just showing how um, the kind of insanity that we perform online is like the best example of how people rhetorically respond to each other online. Like if you watch these videos and think about those as rhetorical forms, um, it, it makes more sense than the words themselves by just looking at the words. And the kind of uh, headless positions that exist in those performative acts are the same things that's happening online. Um, so. Is there a substantial difference between TikTok and Vine? Like, I, I don't know, what do you see there? Oh, I mean... <laughs> Uh, there's yeah so I think that TikTok um, it hits differently you know um, Vine you know it feels like if you look at Vine videos it feels like much older than it actually is it feels like it's like a decade or, or a decade and a half old um, because of how fast history moves now culturally um, but TikTok still hits in a way where like you didn't expect some like really normy guy to like there's this one really great video for instance where there's this normie guy and he uh is sitting across from this girl and he says to her um i'm sorry did you need a pen because they're about to take a test and then she said yeah and then he said do you want my answers to the test and she says yes and then um he asked her to study um at his house and she says yes and then they go there and uh you know the next question is basically do you obviously like are you gonna make out do you want to make out or like are you interested in me? And then he says, instead, um, I'm so sorry that 9-11 happened. <laughs> and, then she's, and then she gasps and like, is like really shocked. And then, um, and then he says, sorry, that's not 9-11. That's actually just my mom. She's really drunk right now. And then it just turns off. <laughs> and just like the yeah. level of ins- like, senselessness that makes sense at the yeah. same time, where like now we make like our brains make sense of the senselessness and the levels of irony that we wouldn't have during the Vine era. Um, like it's a, it's a little bit more layered and like, so seeing how the kind of, uh, you know, slow <laughs> increase of senselessness now actually makes more sense. You know what this makes me think of is SpongeBob mm-hmm, yeah. because like, so um, here's a little uh, plug cracks and pomo the zine is coming out in like a little less than a month and one of our writers did an article on this on like the absurdity of spongebob and i think spongebob like primed our generation well several generations actually for what was coming in the like vine instagram tiktok era like this total absurdity which makes absolute sense to us um so check that out um okay but next Thoughts on Andrew Tate and the Manosphere? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, Andrew Tate or... uh, um, Also, do you remember Tay, AI bot from Microsoft? No. I mean, Andrew Tate is just basically like the AI bot uh, Tay that went online and got... um, became a neo-Nazi overnight. Not that I'm saying Andrew Tate is. I'm just saying that the algorithm tends to... Politi- like push people to political extremes if you look at china the same thing happened in china as it did in the united states like through polysygamy or like these other uh kind of like systems where 
as you know, as uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica kind of like t- tilts the scales in 2016 towards um, more conservative people through like psychometrics and all of this. Um, the same thing is happening all over the world, basically. Like the if you if you want to understand like what a 16 year old is likely to believe, um, they're going to be in some weird political niche extreme that you could never predict but you're going to know that it's an extreme and you can't predict what it is and so schismogenesis gives rise to people that want to have a personality and that means being really unique and extreme and um yeah have kids you'll see uh they may become Andrew Tate they may become uh um you know what's the what's the cutest cell guy's name I don't know the like uh I forget his name. He might. They might become an insult. You know, they might become yeah. this SJW. They might become Camille Paglia, the anti-trans trans uh, man. So you know. My theory is that I mean, speaking of the algorithm, I do think he's a psyop. I think he was put there um, to radicalize anybody. He's because he's like an extreme form of Jordan Peterson. Like Peterson, ultimately, when it comes down to it, is pretty harmless. I think. Um, but I think, like, in order to kind of exacerbate the, like, quote-unquote culture war, like, you want to take anyone who believes in, like, essentialist gender difference and radicalize them so then you can demonize them and then, like, totally erase any type of essentialism yeah. whatsoever. I don't know. I mean, oh maybe God, not. This reminds me, uh, do, you, do you know about, like, the, the Russian people's revolution happening? Like, there's, like, this rebel group within uh, Russia happening right now, and it's started by, like, this right-wing uh neo-nazi who like was like i'm gonna like i'm gonna make the world more neo-nazi by starting a clothing brand called like white rex i believe i think his name's like nikita nikidia um anyway so he started uh, 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 a rebel faction on the russian on the russian side um and so basically it's like when dugan alexander dugan are you aware yeah okay you know, he was on 60 Minutes, um, like, 10 years ago, and he, and or maybe even more recent, and he's like, uh, the thing that the, the people of, uh, of other countries do not understand about Eurasia is that uh, we want Putin to be more fascist uh, from below. The people demand that he become more fascist, and you would think that that's, like, bullshit and, like, that, you know, Dugan's just saying this for, like, you know, to kind of like in a Zizekian way troll, but like, and then you see this like neo-Nazi group that are like upset with Russia and they're like to the right of Putin. Um, and so like, they're the ones that are causing the, the rebellion. It's not like some kind of like, I would have expected it to actually be uh, like a cosmopolitan faction of Russia that has been, you know, financially and monetarily hit by the war who never wanted to be a part of this, that never wanted to, Russia to isolate. They always wanted russia to you know continue to open its borders and to make their metropolitan cities more cosmopolitan and so basically uh instead it's like a it's this neo-nazi faction that you know first they wanted to uh you know spread their uh their message through a fashion brand now they're doing it through a rebel faction um and russia and so that's the best pr if you're wondering um Obviously, if this this guy's doing it, uh, you should do it as well. So, okay. interesting. Um, so this is kind of a throwback to one of the first neoliberal hell podcasts, 
you talked about other kin um transspeciesism we could also say i'm wondering do you think we're on the verge of a transracial moment like do you think that's going to start to become like more like the rachel dolezals or the ali london's like is this going to become more pervasive at a certain point I mean, I I think it's, I mean, I think because extreme personalities and identities are just, um, what, what once was like a social aberration now is every social aberration becomes absorbed by the system, um, by endless, you know, duplication and division. So, I mean, I think it's just, you know, it may not happen in the next decade, but it's definitely yeah. going to happen. I mean, as people talk about how gender is a social construction they're going to talk about how race is and it's obviously way more charged and i'm not you know i'm not for or against it but um i think that the more radical factions of the left would say like well we need white abolition you know and like abolishing whiteness is a form of transracialism and then you know con- forms of the right will say like well if you uh you know if you really believe that uh that being white is more powerful then i'm going to become more white or something like that at least this is kind of like the the position that Ollie London is doing, except he believes that being Asian is giving him more power, I guess, in some kind of way, because he's obsessed with K-pop people. Um, so, Yeah, I mean, I'm still a little hung up on the cognitive dissonance of, like, pro-transgender, anti-transracial, in the sense that, like, right now, a Rachel Dolezal is a cultural appropriator. Like, she's on the wrong side. Personally, I do think it's, like, intellectually consistent to say, okay, like, if identity is self-determined, it should extend beyond gender to racial identity, even to to our species in a way. I mean, sure, that's a little more outlandish, but I don't know. Because I also think about, like, when I think about my upbringing, growing up in, like, a very monolithic suburban environment where, like identity is something super abstract like again very much pulled up from the roots and that's why for me like gender identity was very confusing because being a male was never integrated into some concrete reality it's it's purely performative so if i have an interest that fits into a a girl box then like that must mean my identity is female but the same goes for ethnic or racial identity because again like being in a very bourgeois bureaucratic suburban environment being greek and italian there's no concrete way to express that it's very you know up in the air so if i like black culture if i like japanese culture shouldn't that mean that i'm also black or japanese like sure it's more complex than i'm making it out to be but i'm just saying like at a certain point we have to realize there's this level of cognitive dissonance that like i think it has to be addressed i don't know yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the idea that um, when Clarence Thomas, like, say that Clarence Thomas, you know, makes a statement about Black Lives Matter, and he says that, you know, it's harmful to black people, um, and, you know, you've seen a lot of black conservatives say these things. Some people would say, like, well, this is a form of whiteness, and he's enacting this form of whiteness as a black person. Um, so uh, this is kind of like the, you know, kind of like the, the left critique of that, Um um, which I think a lot of people on the left may not agree with. You know, they, they would agree maybe with that this is a, some form of whiteness, but even people have an issue with this, this construction of uh, whiteness being uh, decoupled from white people in itself. 
Um, but a lot of radical people I know say this um, very often and want to abolish whiteness. Um, but I, I don't know about the cognitive dissonance element because, of course, um, I don't think the categories are equal, you know, uh, gender and race. But I do think it's important to recognize how um, race is not a series of genes. Often we associate uh, race with just two things, we have, like facial features and skin color, but really uh, it's far more complicated. If you saw the, the latest, we talked about this on the episode, like the census updated there to be multiple races. And everyone is multiple, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people are, are in the other category for a long time in the census where there are more than one race, you know. Um, and so it gets really complicated really fast with race. Um, and yeah, it's hard to deal with as much complexity in a political environment that wants to reduce everything down to a soundbite. So. so one more hot take. Election 24 predictions? Oh, um, it, it's interesting how we see, uh, you know, we have basically two horseshoe candidates on the left. We have Marianne Williamson and then we have Kennedy. And uh, so Williamson and Kennedy are basically, we see Kennedy as kind of like the gray zone candidate. You know, he's like, he opposes lockdowns and, you know, uh, the vaccine, um, but he's like for Medicare for all and he's for like uh, education for all, these kinds of things. And then you kind of have like the more kind of like SJW, new age um, kind of outsider candidate, Marianne Williamson, who um, represents kind of like the the hippie LA um, left that seems also disenchanted and maybe secret, maybe in secret is against vaccines, but they wouldn't say that out loud, you know? Um, but basically we have two candidates that are uh, more or less, you know, against, you know, the, the vaccine mandate. And, uh, and so it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of an odd position because basically um, Biden is now seen as like the rationalist candidate and the only alternatives are people that are, you know, of this emerging uh, horseshoe category um, that nobody uh, is willing to even talk about in the media. Um, and so basically it's a holdout. Uh, there's like no coverage really happening. There's no debate because uh, the whole strategy is basically just to make it so Biden never has to go and camera or speak because when he does, he he's often befuddling um and then the trump and desantis thing is also a weird standoff too where it's like desantis all of a sudden is like polling badly and it's not even sure if he's gonna run it's so you know it's so late to run um and all the other candidates just don't seem realistic so um it seems like biden and trump are gonna go at it again um trump may you know be arrested in georgia who knows um, so I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, because, I mean, I feel like DeSantis is, in a way, emulating this, like, amoral, decadent, Trumpian vibe, but gets it completely wrong, because back to, like, the cringe-based, sincere, ironic kind of paradigm, Trump is, like, pure irony. There's nothing sincere. He's pure camp artifice. Which is what makes him compelling, gives him some semblance of credibility, whereas DeSantis is, like, overly earnest. Like, he 
acts as if he really believes all these things. And I'm like, this is where you go wrong. Like, the only good thing about Trump is that he doesn't believe in anything. And this is where, again, like, in a similar way to Maddie Healy or to Red Scare, like, his artificiality holds up a mirror to us. It's because he doesn't care that we're able to understand something substantial. Whereas DeSantis, it's like, you're, I mean, like, you have no moral consistency at all. And you you act as if you are a very, you know, you're standing up for traditional moral values. Like, no, there's nothing valuable about it. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, going back to Weber, it's interesting because basically... Uh, Trump is the charismatic leader and uh, DeSantis is representing the legal rationalist leader, supposedly. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was a member of the deep state as he was on Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, is likely, you know, working with, uh, you know, working from that knowledge of deep bureaucracy still. Um, and he seems like the more rationalist person, um, and he seems like uh, he scares a lot of people on the left because he seems like if he was elected, he would actually be able to, you know, wield state power in a way that Trump never could because, you know, he's too much of an outsider. And it just shows the difference between Trump, who has uh, he's high class, but low status. Uh, he's low status. He's always been hated, like, for instance, in Manhattan, um, low status here. Um, and, but he has lots of money. Um, and so he plays the proletarian populist role um, as a person who's very rich. And he, and he plays that role because he, uh, you know, he's alienated from uh, being able to become prestigious within that role of being a, a, a rich person. Um, but it's actually the opposite. Basically, he was given all this privilege and just fucked it up. And now he's like doing the best he can. Whereas like DeSantis um, is basically who the Republicans want. And it's because he would be, uh, you know, like a one-to-one with Biden. And if he was elected, um, we would probably see uh, a reuniting of the Republican Party once again. But if not, we will continue to see the splitting um, that is ha- had been happening on the left for a long time. So, yeah. yeah. So, all right. So with that, Matt, anything you want to plug for listeners before we go? Um. I, I'm, I'm writing a piece for Days right now. Um, it's not confirmed, but I'm writing a piece on the NPCC uh, moment. Uh, it's, it's related to the ambient polity. Um, and then, uh, yeah, check out our podcast, New Liberal Hall Podcast. Um, that's about it, yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, totally. Thanks for having me, Stephen.